Well, I have to warn you about your prejudices as we read this passage this morning. Uh, we're going to read these two scenes in this chapter. But please know that you already know how this king and his story goes. His name is Ahab. And you have this tendency to already know he's terrible, wicked, and no good. And so that's how he's going to act. But please remember that he's still living. We drop in the middle of his life. He's still living his life. He's making choices. He has an option in this chapter of making a better choice than he actually does. We already know how it's going to end. We all have this scowl on our face every time we hear the name Ahab or his wife Jezebel. And so you've got this tendency to think, well, this is going to go bad. But please remember, he has the chance as his life progresses. He could make a different choice than he actually does in this story. This could have been a totally different ending for him and his life if he'd chosen different in this chapter. He has his chances. God gives him a chance to make a change. And I want you to know something. This morning may be your chance to do the same thing. There could be people in here, you're going on a trajectory that, listen, if you don't change it, you're going to end with a bad ending to your story. If you don't change it, if you don't make different choices, you're going to end in a bad spot. And I want you to know it doesn't have to be that way. You're still writing your story. Your story is to, you have a chance, even this morning, to make a different choice. So make it. You're not stuck in anything. Nothing's been decided yet. You've got a free choice. I just want you to remember Ahab did too. And in this chapter, God is working overtime to win Ahab over. I want you to know God knows how the story ends too, but he did everything as the story progressed in real time. He did everything to make Ahab respond to him. He's giving him these overtures. He's making these advances toward him to get him to trust him, and he won't. But what you know is this. You know that Ahab has already chosen to worship Baal, and he's introduced Baal worship in Israel. You know that. Next screen. Yeah. He's made a bad marriage choice. Her name is Jezebel. He should have never married her, and it was a mess. And yet, <laughs> and even yet, God is still going to try to win him over. You know one other thing. We're going to back up the one chapter, verse nine, chapter 19. This is where uh, Elijah had kind of like this great depression. Uh, God calls him out of it by putting him to work. And here's one of the things that he says. You're about to do this, Elijah. So go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Don't stay here at the Mount of God forever. I want you to, you've got another job to do. And so when you arrive, you're going to anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Ben-Hadad is the king right now. He's in our chapter. But he says, I've already appointed the person after him, so I want you to anoint him. God appointed, Elijah anointed. But, but here's the thing. He's not yet, but I already have plans for the next one. And also, go on down to Israel. Ahab's the king there, but I want you to go ahead and anoint the next king because I've already decided what I'm going to do with Ahab. So already God has plans for beyond these people. But right now, Ahab's in power. And God's not done with trying to woo him to himself. God's not done trying to get him to respond in relationship to the God of Israel. He's trying to win him over. And God's making as many moves as he can. Can I tell you this, that God is doing this with every human alive. He is doing everything he can to get them to choose him. Our God is a pro-choice God. 
He's going to let you choose to follow him or not, but I'm going to tell you this. He's not objective about it. He's not objective about it. He wants you to choose him. And he's doing everything he can to do this. In fact, he's taken the initiative, right? For every one of us, I know this. I want you to complete the line, right? While we were still powerless, Christ died for us. We were an enemy. We were opposed to God. We were working against God. And yet, even while we're doing that, God's working for our behalf. He's doing everything he can. He created us. He offers us redemption. He does so many things, and he's trying to tell us that he wants to be our God. He wants to be in relationship with us, but he leaves the choice with us. Scene number one. This was read a moment ago, and you know we usually say amen to readings, but sometimes when a reading is read aloud, you really shouldn't say amen to it. This is one of them. I want you to listen carefully to what happens. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathers his army together, and he gets 32 kings with him, it says. Horses and chariots, they're vastly outnumbering and outpowering Israel. And they went up and they closed in on Samaria and they fought against it. They've got the Israelites kind of cowering. And he sent messengers, he sent a, a, a terms of peace. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel. And here's what he said. Listen to what he says. You don't say amen to this. Okay? Thus says Ben-Hadad. Here's what the king has to say to you. Your silver, your gold are mine. I want your money. Keep going. Your best wives and children are mine. And he agrees to it. What should he do? Somebody comes into your house and says, I'm going to take your money, I'm going to take your family. All right. What? Now, let me ask you this. If somebody says, I'm coming into Valley View to take the best wives, who's that? Okay, let me, you get why this is confusing. Okay, raise your hand if you're one of the best wives at Valley View. Husbands, who says? Who of you says you have one of the best wives at Valley View? Smart boys, smart boys, right? What does that mean? We're going to take the best wives and the best children. Who in the world is that? But you know what Ahab says? Okay, I'll let you do this. This is weird. What kind of a king are you? What kind of a sicko are you? These are the terms of peace. And he says, okay, right? But keep reading because Ben-Hadad has a change of heart. He decides, I'm going to kind of change these terms a little bit. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of, uh, and he says, your silver and gold are mine, your best wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered, as you say, O Lord, my king, I am yours and all that I have. Go ahead. But then the king comes back and he says, I want to clarify some things. The messenger came again and said, thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they're going to search your houses and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Now I've canceled the DoorDash. You don't send me your best wives and children and all your money. Don't send it to me. Now I'm coming to pick it. Oh, oh, now they're going to go pew by pew and pick the best wives. Which one of you would they take? 
I'm hiding my wife in the baptistry. This is over the top. I don't understand. Ahab said, okay, the first time, but he says to this, no. And the first early service, I said, why would he do that? And Danny said, I can tell you why. He was going to send them all the ugly ones and get rid of them. Your elder said that. It's weird, isn't it? Well, what's he going to do? He gets the elders together. Verse 7. Called the elders of the land and said, Mark, now listen to this and see how this man is seeking trouble. He's picking a fight. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, for my silver, my gold, and I did not refuse him. All the elders and all the people said to him, don't listen or consent. So they sent messengers back to the king and said, sorry, that first demand of your servant, I would do it, but this thing I cannot do. You're not going to come in and pick. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad said to him, the gods be so to do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls of all the people who follow me. That is so weird language. Here's what he says. Tomorrow, all that's going to remain of your city is dust. I'm going to wipe you out because you won't let me come and pick the best wives and children and money. I'm coming in. And somehow, now finally, Ahab grows backbone. I'm not sure what the source of his confidence is, but he says, let not him who straps on his armor boast as if he's taking it off. That's a weird line, isn't it? This is a weird line, and so I'm going to tell you what, I th what it means. It means don't act like the war's over. Don't count this as a victory yet. Don't assume you're going to win. Or we say it like this, don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? Don't you think, on paper you may think you have a victory, but you, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight for this. Now, I don't know what Ahab is intending to do with this, but this is a threat to him. And Ben-Hadad took that message and he said, okay, we're going to start drinking. And they start drinking in their tents. And he gets his men in position for the battle the next day. And there he is. And this is where we have, we have this tension built. In verse 13, we have an introduction to somebody. God enters the story. When a prophet comes in, this is meaning God's inserting himself into the story. And the prophet comes to Ahab. Ahab doesn't pray. Ahab doesn't cry to God. Ahab doesn't do anything to appeal to God for help, but God sends help anyway. Isn't it wonderful to have an answer to your prayer when you never prayed in the first place? It's a wonderful setting here. Behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? I'm going to give it into your hand this day, and you're going to know that I'm the Lord. I want you to know. This is, this is an overture. This is a grand advance I'm making toward you. I want you to know I'm, I, you didn't ask, but I'm going to come in and bless you big time. I'm going to give you victory over this army that's far superior to yours. And I want you to know it's me. And I want you to know it's the God of Israel. And I want you to know it so that you will want relationship with me. And instead of turning to Baal, who can't do a cotton picking thing, I want you to turn to me. God is sending him a special gift that day. And he, I'm not sure he believes it. He's thankful, but he says, by whom? How are we going to win this? My army's wimpy. Who's going to do this? And God says to him, God opens up the battle strategy, gives him a glimpse of the battle to come. And he says, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of your districts, 
diplomats, three-piece suit wearing, people who sit in conference tables, these people uh, who, are, uh, who kind of serve your governor as kind of like their uh, press secretary or something, they're going to get together and they're going to fight the battle. This is strange. These aren't, these aren't trained people for battle. These are diplomats, people who talk. And he says, these 232 district governors of yours, they're servants, they're going to come and they're going to fight this battle. And that's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. But that's how God chooses to do it. And God does this sometimes. God sometimes wants to tilt it in the direction of this can only be explained by God. You remember Gideon? He had all these warriors and thousands of warriors. And God says, not, not too much. Let's whittle it down. Let's whittle it down. And you know why, right? Because when you win, you're going to think it's because you had superior power. I don't want that to be the case. I want when you win it to be such a laughingstock that everybody goes, the only explanation is God fought for us. 232 diplomats are going to go out there and fight a far superior army. And Ahab's worried about this. Who's going to start this battle? And God said through the prophet, you're going to start this. And so he got those servants together in verse 15. But he also, back behind the scenes, got a little bit of an army together because he wasn't at all trusting God's idea. So he got 7,000 people back behind him just in case those 232 diplomats can't do the job. They wait till noon. That's a terrible time to fight a war. But Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in his tent. So were the other kings. It's a great time to fight because the opponents are all drunk. This may remind you of George Washington crossing the Delaware. And he attacks on Christmas Day when everybody else thinks nobody's going to fight on Christmas Day. And they're kind of celebrating Christmas out there. And they're able to defeat the enemy because of a surprise attack. And that's what ends up happening. These 232 delegates wearing their three-piece suits come walking out on the war field. And, and, and Ben-Hadad's forces say they're asking for terms of peace. So they go out to meet them. And when they go out there, they pull out all their knives and they kill them all. These diplomats kill these warriors. It scares the Syrians like crazy, and they start taking off. And the Israelites, with those 7,000 troops, they go after the Syrians and whoop them. It's an amazing thing, totally explainable to anybody watching it. And they win. And the prophet, he comes out, verse 22. And he says to the king of Israel, right now you won, but they're going to be back. They're going to rally, and they're going to be back next spring, and you need to be ready. So the prophet's given him a to-be-continued dot, dot, dot at the end of the sitcom. This isn't over yet. Meanwhile, notice verse 23, the servants of the king of Syria are going, what in the world happened out there? Their gods are gods of the hills, so they're stronger than we are in the hills, but let us fight against them in the plain, and we'll be stronger than them. Their god is a god of the, the hills, and we fought them in the hills. Man, we didn't think about that. God is limited to the hills. God can only reign in the hills. We need to meet them in the plains. Those of you who listen to Christian, contemporary Christian music, there's a guy who sings a song about this called Hills and Valleys. It's a song, not a particular fan of it, but Torrin Wells sings it, and it's from this text. When you're on the hill, God is with you, and you know it. When you're in the plain, God's still with you, and you still know it. We serve a God who's a God of the hills and the valleys. 
Don't think there's a geographic limitation to our God. He owns the whole earth. He made it. He sustains it. And he's in every nook and cranny. And you can never be in a spot in your life ever where God is not with you. Isn't that right, church? You cannot be in a spot where God can't reach you with his help and his aid and his presence. That's important to know that. But that's their conclusion is that our God, we are the church on the hill, but when you go down in the valley, you're the church in the valley then. Wherever you go, be the church because that's what God has empowered you to be. So that's their conclusion. And, and the next spring, here comes scene number two. But God, obviously, Ab sees that God showed kindness, gave him this great victory, certainly better than Baal did. Baal contributed nothing. And so the Syrian people decide, okay, next time we're going we're gonna to make sure that we meet them in the plains, right? So scene number two begins in verse 26. Ben-Hadad ben Hadad gathers all his forces, and he meets them at Aphek, and he's well-prepared. Now, this is what the Syrian army looked like, according to the text. You look at that. Waves and waves of well-equipped, well-prepared soldiers. You see that? The text goes on to say, this is what Israel looked like. It's what it says. Two miserable flocks of goats. That's what the text says Israel looks like. You have the Syrians back up. Yep. All across the plain. And then you have the Israelites looking like this. The odds are very bad, right? They're terrible. They don't stand a chance. They're going to pull the wool over their eyes like that, right? So the battle is forming up, and it, this, this is kind of a shock and awe scene. When you go out there and you see miles and miles of well-prepared, well-equipped soldiers, and they're thinking, we're going to terrify them into oblivion. But verse 28, this beautiful sight. The man of God comes again. A different one, it sounds like. A man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Oh, this is good news. Listen, when you have God's prophet come back after he brought you victory the first time, you're like, you, are, you have beautiful feet. You bring good news. And this, this is what the prophet says. God overheard them in their tent, and they determined that God was a God of the hills. God is no match for us in the plains. And that ticks God off. God is very angry about this because you think you have him figured out and he'll show up in the hills but not in the valleys. I'll show you how this is going to work. And so the man of God says, I want you to know, just as sure as that first victory was, God has handed you this one because he wants to prove to these people God is God everywhere. But God, Ahab, wants to prove to you that God is everywhere. And then third, Ahab, God wants to prove to the Israelites, God is always there for his people, no matter what trouble they're in. I want you to see it, and I want you to know that I'm the Lord, your God. I want relationship, Ahab. I want you to see I'm superior to Baal. I'm superior to other options. I am, I am the God of all the living of the earth. So what happens? Seven days, they stand around watching each other, verses 29 and 30. And then the Israelites attack, and they killed 100,000 Syrian soldiers. And the rest of them go, go running into Aphek, and they close, they close the walls. And so the walls and the gates are all closed, and we have like a Jericho 2.0. And here's what happens. 
They gather their forces inside the walled city of Aphek, and they're by the wall, you know, protected from the Israelite army, when all of a sudden, unexplainably, the walls of the city collapse inside, and they kill 27,000 of them that are inside that city. You remember Jericho fell out, right? The walls fell out. This time God says, hey, I'll change my tactic. I'll maybe move in, and boom. So God uses walls, and he gives them this great victory. Ben-Hadad the king hides somewhere in Aphek, and he realizes he's doomed. He's met the God of Israel, and he doesn't like him. So he's hiding. And he gets to thinking, I, I think the Israelites are merciful. They use the word chesed. They, he, I think they're graceful people. I think I'm going to come out and appeal for mercy. And so he puts sackcloth on his head, right? And he comes out wearing sackcloth and all that. And he appeals to Ahab and says, oh, please let me go. And Ahab looks at him and says, okay. And he lets him go away. And God is ticked. God is angry because God had his man. This is God's fight. And so everything in, in, in your victory is to be slaughtered as a way of giving it to God. And he lets the king go. And God is so angry after he's been so gracious and generous toward Ahab. And he just doesn't care, right? And he lets that king go. Well, there's another prophet, a son of the prophet, who decides, I'm going to pull a Nathan. When Nathan comes to David and he has that little story about the sheep thing, you remember? Well, this prophet says, I'm going to act out a, a message for the king. And Ahab is walking, he's coming back from the war, heading toward Samaria back. And here is a prophet of God on the side of the road. This prophet of God says to a stranger, I want you to knock me out. And the guy says, I... I'm not going to hit you. I want you to hit me and injure me. I'm not going to do it. If you don't, a lion will eat you. I'm not going to do it, and a lion ate him. I'm not lying. That's the story. I don't understand it. It's in there, y'all. It's in the story. i got to tell you the story. Another person, he comes up to another person and says, I want you to rear back and hit me hard. And the guy says, okay. And boom, knocks him out, injures him. He's got this injury. He puts a bandage on his face, right? And the prophet goes on the side of the road. And when the king comes by, he says, oh, king. And the king says, what? And he says, I was supposed to guard the king's enemy at cost of my life. I got busy and let my captive go, and now I've got to die. And the king says, I agree with that. And then he took the bandage off, and he realized it was a prophet, and he said, that's exactly what you've done, Ahab. God's enemy was in your hands, and you let him go. Now his life for your life, you're going to die for this. After showing that much kindness, God is just done. The last verse, verse 43 of this chapter says, And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen. You know what that means? He pouted. How many of you are married to men who, when they're frustrated, they pout? Don't hold up your hand. It does no good. It's very bad for you. But this happens to a lot of people. They just pout and they go home. And, just, and they go home and they pout. And in the next chapter, it gets worse when he can't have Naboth's vineyard, right? 
God, for the second time in this chapter, gives him this amazing grace, this unasked for blessing, this great victory that's unexplainable any other way. And God's inviting him, I want you to know me, and I want you to trust me, and I want you to turn from the ways of trusting other things, and I want you just to put your trust in me. And he refuses to do it, extending this invitation for deeper relationship with God. And I wonder how many in here are doing the same thing. God wants a deeper relationship, and he's wooing you. He's wooing you with good things. Every good thing in your life is from him. You know this, right? And it's not just because he wants you to be happy and prosperous. He wants you to know who gave it to you. He wants you to know he wants relationship with you, and he's trying to prosper you into a relationship with you. And for so many of us, we don't even see it. Even the unrighteous person, the most wicked person on earth, is a beneficiary of God's grace. He sends rain, he sends sun on them and blesses them. And every time they gather around a table to eat of the bounty of the earth's production, it is a blessing from God. And even if they don't pray for it or recognize God as the source of it, God is the source of it and he's inviting relationship. Every meal, y'all, that you eat is an invitation from God to relate to him. Every single one. And yet we spurn his advances. He's so patient. He says through Paul to the Athenians in Acts 17, he says, I put little evidences of myself so that people will seek me, but I'm not very far. I just want you to seek a little bit and I'll let you find me. I want relationship. And his signs are everywhere. And he did this with Ahab, and he refused. He spurned every advance. He just was so determined to do things his own way that when God wanted a relationship with him, he rejected it every single time. And this is when it happens for him, right? When when no amount of God's gracious provision will move your heart, no matter how good he is, you refuse to budge from your own selfish way and turn to him and have a relationship with him. When whatever he does, no matter what good it is, you give yourself the credit or you credit something else and you take away God's privilege and desire to relate to you. When no wise instruction of guidance from God moves your heart, you, you've been beneficiary of God's great wisdom through his word and through his people He's directed you around troubles by giving you wisdom beyond experience. But that's not enough to make you endeared to him. When you insist on being in covenant with God's enemies, Ahab showed greater desire for relationship with Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, than he did with the creator God who loved him and gave him victory. How do you explain that? And when you pout and you're angry rather than repent and turn to God. God did the best he could to change the trajectory of Ahab's life. He did everything he could to bless him into obedience and holiness and blessing. And he rejected it. Do you see the signs of God's providential care in your life? Do you see how he's taken care of you? how he's seeking relationship with you. He's advancing upon you, wooing you to himself. 
And most of you are gathered here on a Sunday because you know it is an expression of your relationship with him. The reason you're here is because you love God and you know he loves you. But there are still some people here God is still pursuing and he's still wooing. And you're still just like, it's not enough, not enough, not enough. What can he do? What else can he do that he hasn't already done? We know how Ahab's story went. It ended very badly. We know that. It's too late for him to make any kind of adjustment to where he's going. But where you are, God's still in pursuit. He's still after you. And you have time to take advantage of this opportunity and be in relationship. Well, you have a chance to change the direction of your life. Are you going to do it? Has God done enough? We gathered around a table and remembered that he gave up his son in pursuit of you. Every good thing you have in your life is him in pursuit of you. The good people he brings into your life, God in pursuit of you. Every meal that you eat, God in pursuit of you. If for whatever reason you've spurned his advances up to now, Looky here, another chance, right here, right now. Accept his relationship invitation. It's open right now as we stand, as we sing.